The Toby Gribbon Show. Highlights. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Peter Tatchell is a human rights campaigner renowned for his LGBTQI plus activism. Tatchell's advocacy spans campaigns against violence inciting music lyrics, citizens' arrests of Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe, and his directorship at the Peter Tatchell Foundation since 2011, while engaging in numerous debates on a wide array of subjects. And Peter is with us here. How are you today? I'm good, thank you, and very pleased to join you. So where do you think your desire to become an activist came from? Well, that's a very big question. <laughs> yeah. And I, I wouldn't suggest that I have an answer, but maybe um, it goes back to my childhood. I grew up in Melbourne, Australia in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, my family was very, very poor. And on top of that, my mother was very, very sick with chronic, acute, life-threatening asthma. So a lot of our family's income went on medical bills um, because at that time in Australia, there was no equivalent to the National Health Service. It was all private medicine. So we were very, very poor. And um, I remember thinking at an early age how unfair it was that just because of our mother's illness that we suffered such severe poverty. So that's probably part of the reason which sort of gave me a sense of injustice and wanting to put things right. But also I grew up in the 1960s when the black civil rights movement in America was pretty much on the nightly TV news and in the press every single day. And I really admired African-Americans in their struggle for freedom. I could see very clearly, even though I was only quite young, I could see very clearly that racial discrimination was wrong. So I guess those two factors gave me a social conscience and made me want to try and do my bit to help change things for the better. And did you notice a similarity between the black civil rights movement and homosexuality and LGBT rights? Well, this was all long before I realised that I myself was gay. You know, I'm talking about from the ages of about 10 to 16. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought I was straight because I was brought up in a devout Christian fundamentalist family. Homosexuality is one of the worst, most horrific sins in their eyes. 
Um, I had no conception that I might be gay. And, you know, I just imbibed the prevailing religious and social view that homosexuality was very, very wrong. Um, of course, when I realized I was gay, uh, that burning sense of wanting justice translated very easily. So, you know, I remember late in 1969, I never heard about the Stonewall riots, but I heard about a subsequent protest in New York by the newly formed Gay Liberation Front. Um, and I thought to myself, wow, this is what we need here in Melbourne, Australia. I want to be part of this movement. You know, I've been fighting for Aboriginal and Indigenous rights against the death penalty, against Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War, and for justice for working class people. Now it's my fight as a gay man. How have you seen the landscape change over the years in terms of your own rights as a gay man and LGBT rights kind of generally? Well, of course, back then in Melbourne, Australia in the late 1960s, there were no LGBT plus organisations, no campaign groups, not even any helplines or switchboards. There was absolutely nothing. So I, as a um, idealistic young 17-year-old, I wanted to set up an LGBT plus group in Melbourne. And I knew a few gay people from friendship networks and um, at work, my workplace, but they were all too scared. <laughs> they said to me, you know, go away. You're, you're, you're 17 years old. What do you know? You'll, you'll get us all arrested. <laughs> get out of here. Um, so it was quite dispiriting. So what I did was um, simply write letters to the press um, criticizing homophobic reporting and making the case for the decriminalization of homosexuality, which was still in the late 1960s, a serious crime in the state of Victoria, Australia. Um, initially, I didn't dare sign my name, let alone give my address, yeah. because I feared a policeman's knock on the door. But eventually, over a period of months, I began to sign my name and eventually give my address. Um, fortunately, luckily, there was no knock at the door by the police. Um, but that fear was always there. And that was the kind of atmosphere in which I grew up, you know. Uh, you know, no LGBT plus organisations, uh, criminalisation, even the courts could force you un to undergo compulsory psychiatric treatment if you were gay. Um, you know, there was no positive images of LGBT plus people, no role models, nobody in public life was open about their homosexuality. Um, the medical and psychiatric professions said we were sick and needed curing. Um, the church condemned and damned us. They said we were going to burn in hell. So it was a very, very different atmosphere from today. What would you say are some of the key moments or campaigns that you are the most proud of? That's sort of hard to say because I've been involved in lots of campaigns, but it's never been me alone. Yeah. I've always been working with others as, as part of an alliance, a coalition. So in the early 1970s, I was involved in, when I came to London in 1971, well, at the age of 19, I got involved in the newly formed Gay Liberation Front. And we did you know, many spectacular protests, including against police harassment, against um, condemnation and damnation by the church, um, against media, homophobic reporting and so on. So I'm proud of all that period. And then, of course, much later, I was involved in the LGBT plus nonviolent direct action group Outrage during the 1990s. And they did you know, a protest every week or other week for years and years and years, highlighting different aspects of homophobic, biophobic and transphobic discrimination, but also making the case for equality, for inclusion, for you know, education in schools that was LGBT plus inclusive, for partnership rights, for same sex couples. 
to end the ban on LGBT plus people in the armed forces, to equalize the age of consent at 16 for everyone, and for comprehensive anti-discrimination laws to protect us against discrimination based on our sexual orientation or our gender identity. So I'm proud of all those protests, but I've had to pick one. I would say it was the outrage campaign in the early 1990s against police victimization. We sat down and tried to negotiate with the police to end the witch hunts. We were invited to New Scotland Yard. They gave us tea and sandwiches. They smiled. They shook our hands. Then they'd go away and organize another series of raids and arrests. So after this was going on for three or four months, we just said, look, clearly, this is just a PR window dressing exercise by the police to make themselves look good so they could say we're liaising with the LGBT plus community. But clearly what they were doing was very, very different. It was a PR exercise to disguise the fact that the raids and arrests were carrying on just like before. So outrage left those meetings. We walked out of those meetings in New Scotland Yard and we began a very high profile campaign to expose and challenge the police. Uh, this included things like invading and occupying police stations, um, included um, um, interrupting the press conferences of the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. It included exposing undercover police officers who were luring gay men into committing same sex acts and then arresting them. And we also, of course, told the stories of LGBT plus people who've been victims of police malpractice and abuse. So, for example, there was a case of the two lesbians who were arrested at the ticket barriers at Victoria Railway Station. I think it was in 1991. <laughs> there were no laws against lesbianism. Yeah. So the police arrested them under the Public Order Act 1986, which made an offence to do something that could be construed as behaviour likely to cause harassment alarm or distress to the public. And those two women were taken to court on that charge. And they were convicted, fined £60 and given a criminal record. Now, when we told those stories or got those women to tell their stories, many members of the public thought that this was overkill by the police. They may not have necessarily agreed with homosexuality, but the public saw this as overbearing, oppressive policing. These women hadn't harmed anyone. It was a good night kiss, for fuck's sake. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, it was just a monstrous abuse of police power. And we told many other stories of police raids on private birthday parties, um, or people being arrested for dancing in clubs, not, not, not physical touching dancing, but just dancing together as a couple, you know. Um, and that really turned the public against the police. So the police uh, eventually uh, pleaded with us to come back to the negotiating table because they were, they were being made fools of. They, they were embarrassed. They were ashamed <laughs> at the way they were being exposed. So we came back. But we came back with a set of, I think it was 12 demands for a non-homophobic policing policy. These were ideas we had borrowed from more progressive police forces in Amsterdam and Copenhagen, but also ideas we thought up ourselves. And I've got to tell you, the police were completely thrown because they saw us just as a protest group. But when we came back with concrete, specific demands, achievable, practical and sensible, um, they were thrown. <laughs> they didn't know what to do. They were sort of boxed into a corner. But eventually, within a year, they had agreed to three quarters of our demands for non-homophobic policing policy. Three quarters. 
doctors within one year. And within three years, the number of gay and bisexual men convicted for consenting same-sex behavior fell by two-thirds. That's the biggest, fastest fall ever recorded. So we literally saved thousands, thousands of gay and bisexual men and some lesbians from oppressive police victimization. And of course, that was a, a huge transformer in terms of our community, because when we got the police off our backs, more and more people felt comfortable about coming out and protesting for our rights and freedoms. That's quite impressive. And throughout your career, you've been a strong advocate for direct action like that. So to what extent do you believe that outrage and all your other direct action has helped to change laws and attitudes? Going back to my earlier remarks about how I began, as I said, I was inspired by the Black Civil Rights Movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, at the time, there were no LGBT plus organisations in Australia or in Melbourne anyway. Um, and so I used the Black Civil Rights Movement as the template for my subsequent LGBT plus activism. I used their tactics and ideas of nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience as a way to raise public awareness about the oppression of our community and to put pressure on the authorities to change. So this you know, Black Civil Rights heritage that I've, 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 I've I had has been really powerful, significant and important in the kind of activism I've done over the years. And you're right, you know, it has resulted in many positive progressive changes. Um, you mentioned my two attempted citizen's arrest of the Zimbabwean dictator and homophobe uh, Robert Mugabe. Um, now, I did not succeed in getting him arrested, but the fact that I tried and in one case got beaten unconscious by his bodyguards put that issue on the public agenda in a way that nothing else had done at that time. This is we're talking about 1999 and 2001. Um, so it raised awareness about his human rights abuses because when people saw the footage of me being beaten unconscious by President Mugabe's bodyguards in Brussels in 2001 outside the Hilton Hotel, they thought to themselves, if Mugabe is prepared to have his goons beat up a peaceful protester in a European capital city in broad daylight in front of the world's media, just imagine what he's doing to his own people back in Zimbabwe when no one is watching. So I never wanted to get beaten up. I'm still living with a brain and um, eye damage as a result. But, you know, it was very effective in yeah. highlighting the brutality of the Mugabe regime. Well, how do you maintain all your courage and resilience in the face of all these challenges and threats? Well, sometimes it's tough. You know, I, 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 you know I'm a warrior. Yeah. I'm a warrior for LGBT freedom and for human rights in general. But, you know, it, it has been tough. I mean, I have been physically violently assaulted over 300 times. Wow. Fists and boots, bottles, bricks, um, you name it. Um, I've had most of my teeth in my mouth chipped and cracked from those assaults. I've had 50 attacks upon my flat, including three arson attempts, even a bullet through my front door. You know, it has been tough. And, you know, psychologically and emotionally, I've often struggled. But what's kept me going is the inspiration of, you know, Martin Luther King and the Black Civil Rights Movement in America in the 1960s, Mahendras Gandhi and his struggle for Indian independence against the British Empire uh, in the 1940s. Um, on top of that, you know, think about, you know, other momentum 
momentous figures in history, Nelson, Nelson Mandela, um, you know, who led a battle for black freedom in South Africa under apartheid and spent decades and decades behind bars. You know, so I just look to those other people and think, well, if they can make sacrifices, if they can make, you know, maintain a struggle for many, many years, many decades, then so can I. And as well as being an advocate for LGBTQI plus rights, you're also one for environmental causes. How do you see the intersections between these issues? Well, for me, it's all about creating or helping to create a better society. You know, I want people to be able to live happy, fulfilled lives. And when we're threatened by climate destruction, the horrendous, um, abnormal, dangerous weather conditions it provokes, when we're faced with um, you know so many different um, threats to our Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Existence, such as the depletion of resources, such as the um, damage to the ozone layer, um, you know, the way in which so many of our rivers and beaches are so polluted, then I think, well, it's another dimension to the human rights struggle. This, all these different struggles are all about trying to create a society where we can all live happier, healthier, more fulfilling lives. So, you know, if we're going to fight for LGBT plus freedom, we need a planet on which to practice it. Yeah. <laughs> There's no use fighting for our freedom if we're going to destroy the planet and destroy human civilization. You've actually been involved with 
several kind of political parties as well, like the Green Party and Labour. So what's kind of motivated your shift between the two? And have your political affiliations influenced your advocacy work at all? Well, in terms of my human rights work, that is strictly non-party political. So I do human rights. I work with people from all political parties and none. So I I don't have any favouritism. But in my own personal life, you know, for many years, I was a member of the Labour Party. In fact, I was a Labour candidate in the notorious 1983 Bermondsey by-election. Many commentators say was probably the dirtiest, most violent and definitely most homophobic election in the late 20th century. Um, but uh, I've become somewhat disillusioned with Labour um, for a number of reasons. I mean, uh, I left Labour in 1999. Uh, I stuck with Labour even when Tony Blair became a leader. I stuck with him, but and and Labour. But by 1999, I just I just felt things are going so badly wrong. And and the trigger really was two things. First of all, in that year, Gordon Brown, the then Chancellor, gave pensioners a miserly 75 pence increase in their pension. This was at a time when the national insurance budget had a 7.5 billion pound surplus. I thought that was really, really just so mean, so mean spirited. You know, I thought Labour isn't even socialist anymore. They're, they're, they're just, they can't even care for elderly people when they've got loads of money and could easily afford to have increased the pension by a larger amount. And then around the same time, of course, Labour rigged the selection process to find or choose the Labour candidate for Mayor of London in order to exclude Ken Livingstone. Now, I don't care whether you agree or disagree with Ken Livingstone, but to rig a selection process to stop him, that was profoundly anti-democratic. So you had the two things. Labour was no longer socialist. It wasn't even democratic. And we're seeing the repetition today. You know, all across the country, local Labour parties are being suspended or closed down by Labour head office because they select candidates that the Labour leadership doesn't like. A good example, of course, is Jamie Driscoll in the north of England. He's been a fantastic Labour mayor, but because he's on the left of the party, um, the Labour headquarters has have blocked him from standing for selection for the new mayorality. You know, this is just this is just beyond what is acceptable. And I didn't immediately when I left Labour in 1999-2000, I didn't immediately join another party, but I did eventually join Greens, and I've been a Green Party member since 2004. But even before I joined, way back in the 1980s, I was arguing for an anti-Tory alliance that Labour, the Greens, the Lib Dems, the SNP, Plaid Cymru, the Social Democratic and Labour Party in Northern Ireland, they should all join together to have a common platform, coordinate uh, their election strategies so that people would stand down in favour of whichever candidate from whichever party was most likely to defeat the Conservatives. And I've got to tell you, if that if that policy uh, had been in place in the early 1980s, we never would have had Margaret Thatcher, and we certainly wouldn't have had David Cameron, Theresa May, uh, Liz Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, and Rishi Sunak, because consistently in Britain a majority of people vote against the Conservatives. No party in Britain has won a majority of the public vote since 1931. At the last election, uh, Boris Johnson and the Tories won with only just under 44% of the vote. 
So more than 56% of the people voted against the Conservatives, but they ended up with an 80-seat majority. Now, that is not democratic. It's not fair. And um, you know, I've always advocated collaboration across party boundaries. What's important is not the party that you're in, but the principles and policies you stand for. And there are good people in all the anti-Tory parties, and even a few good people in, in the Tory party itself. But, you know, I think when it comes to an election, you know, the way to go is to get the anti-Tory parties to um, stand down in seats where another, where where one of their number is best placed yeah. to to give them a free run at, at at getting getting elected as an MP. Do you think that'll ever happen though? Because maybe it looks weak to say don't vote for us, vote for this other party. Maybe the best you can hope for is a proportional system, and then you end up with a rainbow coalition from the result. Well, you're absolutely right. What we need now is a you know a progressive alliance between the anti-Tory parties to get the Tories out. But the real solution is proportional representation, which is the system whereby the percentage of seats, sorry, the percentage of vote won by a party uh, is reflected in the percentage of seats won by that party. So it makes seats match votes. So if a party gets 5% of the vote, they should get roughly 5% of the seats. If they get 35% of the vote, they should get roughly 35% of the seats. Um, That is a much more democratic and fairer system. Now, as well as all your advocacy work, you've written thousands of published articles and several books, and I guess they kind of complement each other, really, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I've written on a range of different issues. Um, you know, I wrote The Battle for Bermondsey, the story, the inside story about the Bermondsey by-election in 1983. It's no longer in print, but you can probably get it on eBay or Amazon. Yeah. Uh, also wrote Democratic Defence, which is about setting out the history of democratic movements in the British Armed Forces and the need for the armed forces themselves today to be more democratic and open. So, you know, arguing, for example, for civil and human rights for military personnel. Um, you know, at the moment, um, the military system is that the you know army or the armed forces, they are, um, you know, police, judge, jailer. <laughs> Um, that's not that's not a, 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 an open, fair um, system of justice. Um, we also know that um, you know there's a lot of still a lot of homophobia, racism, and misogyny within the armed forces, which needs to be challenged. And you're also the director of the Peter Tatchell Foundation. So, what are the organisation's main focuses, and how do you see its impact on human rights issues? Among other things, we do a lot of casework, helping individuals, uh, mostly refugees and asylum applicants, but also victims of miscarriages of justice, um, people who have been discriminated against at work or in housing. Um, we also support those who have perhaps suffered um, sexual or violent assaults, helping them get justice. But campaign-wise, um, our reach is, is, is very broad. Uh, we've just uh, this year launched the Apologise Now campaign, which is an appeal to police chiefs across Britain to say sorry for their forces past homophobic persecution of the LGBT plus community. Um, so far, three forces have said sorry. The Metropolitan Police, the Sussex Police and the South Yorkshire Police. And there are more in the pipeline. The aim is to get all the 43 forces across um, the country to say sorry. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but we think it's a very good way to draw a line under that past victimisation. And we 
also hope it will be a prompt for them to improve relations with LGBT plus communities. So when the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, made his apology in June, he not only said sorry, he also announced a new LGBT plus plan for London, which included the appointment of full-time LGBT plus community liaison officers across all London boroughs. So these are dedicated specialist officers who have an understanding and sensitivity about LGBT plus issues and who are charged with liaising with local LGBT plus organisations and with individuals who've been victims of homophobic, biphobic or transphobic hate crime. And that's a really positive move forward. And on top of that, um, the Met Police have now stepped up their in-service and new recruit training on LGBT plus issues. So it means that people who are going to become police officers are given training during their training period on LGBT plus issues so they know and understand the community and so they don't make the kind of mistakes that the officers did during the investigation into the serial killings by Stephen Port in London. Um, That botched investigation showed the failings of many officers. And now, to his credit, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner is trying to put that right. And that's a move which we think is in the right direction. So that's one of the big campaigns we're doing now. Of course, we've also had, a, you know, we've been pioneering the campaign for a ban on conversion therapy since we were set up in 2011. And, um, you know, we are still pushing the government to honour its pledge made over five years ago to ban conversion therapy um, and, and asking why, after more than five years, are we still waiting when that promise was made back in July 2018? Yeah. We're also supporting um, the simplification and easing of the process by which trans people uh, change their legal documents and identities. Um, the process of gender self-ID is very simple. It's easy. It's a statutory declaration. It has the force of law. Uh, you can be uh, jailed for up to two years if you um, fail to live up to it or if you, you, you falsely claim to be trans when you're not. So there are protections there. Um, but it would it, it's been applied in more than 18 countries and regions around the world very successfully. So there's no reason why we can't have it here. Well, looking ahead, what do you think are the most pressing human rights challenges that you see on the horizon And where do you think your focus will be in the coming years? Well, of course, challenging the toxic transphobic atmosphere is, is is a very major issue that faces our whole community. I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking to see the way in which trans people are being demonised, misrepresented, reviled, and completely mischaracterised. Now, sure, some trans people have done bad things. That's a fact. Like some gay people have done bad things. But you can't demonise a whole community on the basis of a few bad apples. So we need to stand up for the trans community, to defend them, to uh, be good allies, to amplify their voices, to stand in solidarity with their struggle. But I suppose looking beyond the UK, we still have a, a huge battle on our hands. There continue to be 66 countries that criminalise same-sex relations. Some of them have just a few years imprisonment. Others have imprisonment plus flogging. And some, of course, have life imprisonment. And 11 have the death penalty. Can you believe it? The death penalty for consenting same-sex acts in 2023. Yeah. On top of that, then there are 43 countries that either explicitly or by interpretation of generic morality laws, criminalise trans people. So globally, the picture is pretty bleak. You know, we have made progress. Lots of, you know, about a dozen countries have decriminalised homosexuality in the last 10 years. But, you know, we still have this core of 66 that treat us as criminals. And that is not good enough. 
And it isn't just about criminalization. We also need protection against discrimination. And a lot more countries than 66 have no protection against discrimination based on sexual orientation or based on gender identity in employment, housing, the provision of goods and services, and so on. So that's another huge battle to fight as well. Well, where are we able to keep up to date with you and perhaps support all your different campaigns? Well, please go to my foundation's website, which is petertatchellfoundation.org. petertatchellfoundation.org. There you will see a resume of our current campaigns, latest news releases, uh, petitions, and so on. Um, If you go to the top right-hand corner, there's a little button which says, Join Us. If you click on that and give us your email address, we will send you a weekly email bulletin on a range of LGBT plus and other human rights issues. It's totally free. There's no charge. You can unsubscribe at any time. But most people say it's a, a very good read. It highlights often issues and things that are happening that people haven't heard about through other media. And of course, if you feel able to do so, next to the Join Us button in the top right-hand corner on the website is the Donate, donate button. Um, we depend entirely on donations from well wishes to sustain our work. So if you can afford to give us maybe one, two, three, four pounds a month, uh, whatever you can afford, um, that would be really grateful because that's what keeps us going because you know we're very low cost, we're very good value for money, but there is money required to to do things. Like last year when I went to Qatar, you know, to stage that protest yeah. just before the World Cup was staged in Qatar. Uh, that cost quite a bit of money and um, not millions or anything, but, you know, uh, the airfares, the accommodation and so on. Um, so that's what your money goes towards. And that kind of protest, for example, that that, that got um, picked up by over 5,000 media outlets around the world uh, and reached a global audience of nearly a billion people. So <laughs> that's the kind of thing we do. And we get the LGBT and women's rights issues out there to that much bigger, wider audience. And that raises awareness. It puts the authorities under pressure. That's what these campaigns are all about. Public awareness, pressure on people in power. Um, so if you can make a donation, yes, please do. And um, I'll just finish by um, reminding you, if you don't know of my motto, uh, it's very simple. Uh, don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. Nice. Well, many thanks for talking to us today. It's been great to have you on. Thank you so much and best wishes to you and all your listeners. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The throbbing pulse of sound, the Toby Gribbon Show.